Oakland's uh, Bible Chapel. Whether you're here in person or online, that's where you are, and Bible is our middle name, so uh, go ahead and get yours out there if you don't have one. Uh, you might want to grab one. There's some in the lobby there, and uh, maybe on your phone or on your uh, iPad or whatever you've uh, brought with you this morning. We're going to be back in the book of Revelation here today. Uh, we've been in this book for uh, quite a while now, and we are in about chapter 8 and chapter 9, so um, we're going to be back uh, talking about that again today. And just to kind of start us all off, everybody's been uh, watching the news for the last few weeks, I'm sure, and especially the last week or so. Um, what, what is the actual plan here in uh, Earth? for what's going to go forward. What are we, what are we thinking is going to be happening here? What are we trying to make happen as we walk through these things? What, where is all of this going? I mean, the world has changed, has it not? This is not the world that I grew up in. Uh, this is not the world that a lot of you grew up in. In the last couple of years, there has been a significant shift in the culture and in the society of this world. Is that not true? This is Nobody thought this was going to happen. This is entirely unplanned by at least almost everybody. Where is all this going? Well, there's lots of different ideas out there, right? right? I asked this after a week or two of, of finding out, too, um, that not everything that we thought was true about what has been happening... <laughs> The dog has something to say about this too, right? Not everything that we thought was true about what has been happening, turns out, is actually true. A lot of people are trying to figure out what we should do now in light of these recent allegations. As if the problem wasn't bad enough before, now we're finding out a whole host of other things and it's just adding more confusion to everything. It's just adding more division to all of us. It's adding more rhetoric into the whole argument. The more, more insults and hatred and anger now. Everybody is arguing. Everybody's weighing in on what now? Do, do Economic overhaul. If we don't do that, we are done. We got to abandon the current financial system. I'm like, what? What is that going to look like in this world? What are we going to do? Are we going to have a world that one of the primary practices is that we are in a constant war with a virus? Is that the way this should go out? There's some people that say it, it does go out that way. It should go out that way. There's people believe that, hey, just, just let it all collapse. This is, let's go full Mad Max situation here. That's what we need. Let's just get rid of every, all the institutions, all the authorities. Let's start this whole thing again. And that a lot of people believe what's, what's happening now in the world are, the, are just the hurdles that we have to clear to progress to our next evolutionary state as mankind. Anybody heard anything like that? recently a we're just we're just one step away from a world free from law and filled with equality we're just one step away from a world free from moral restraint a world where we can all live in peace and harmony 
And whatever direction you think this is all going, right, will determine how you think you need to respond, right? So everybody has this idea of what could happen and what should happen, and they weigh all that out and decide, what am I going to do? That's what they're deciding. And for those that lean towards the, the things that are happening are leading to widespread chaos and anarchy some, or some kind of feudal state situation, it's going to be like, a, well, I need to have a survivalist mentality. I need to hunker down and prepare to survive. I need to <laughs> fight off the hordes that are going to be roaming, like, kind of like getting ready for the so- zombie apocalypse. It's going to be an, an episode of The Walking Dead soon, and we all better prepare. And for those that think we are on uh, kind of the verge of the, the golden age of mankind, that a, a kind of utopian world is just right around the corner. If we can just manage to reset everything, then everyone will love everyone else and we'll look after each other and we'll share everything with total equity and equality for the good of all men everywhere. That's what's going to happen next. And for those people, what's, what's standing in the way of that? Other people are standing in the way of that, right? People who don't believe that this utopian dream is an actual picture of reality. So for those who believe we're at the next stage of the evolutionary development as a species, we just need to leave everyone behind who doesn't want this. We just got to get, just leave them behind. If they don't believe that we are entering utopia or Shangri-La or whatever we're going to call this, forget about them. They don't need to be a part of it. Of course, there's many people who uh, don't want either of those situations to play out. They don't want a total anarchy situation, and they're not thinking the whole, hey, let's just all not own anything and be happy situation is probably not going to work out that well either. It's been tried before. There's people who don't want either of those things. (laughs) Here's what they want. They just want everything to go back to normal, right? Isn't that... Kind of what we hear all over the place. Let's just get back to normal. We're going to do this so we can get back to normal. Let's just all do whatever we need to be able to do to be able to have everything like it was two years ago. Some even just refusing to acknowledge any kind of warning. I'm not even going to acknowledge there's anything wrong. This is just all business as usual. Yeah, it's a little weird, but no problem, no big problem. We can all just get back to it. Some kind of like a, you're a head down or even like head in the sand mentality. If we just ignore it, it will kind of go away plan. So there's all kinds of different things going on in the world. And this last one about like, just I don't want to know. I don't want to think about these things. I don't want to talk about this stuff. I'm just going to sit here and wait till this is all over. We've been studying Revelation. I, ho- I hope it's become obvious to everybody who's been listening that this hunker down and ignore what's happening option is not going to fly much in the end, is it? It's not going to be an option for people much longer. The story of uh, Revelation and the story of this entire book, really, is that one day God is going to force everyone 
to make a decision. One day is going to force, one day God is going to force everyone to pick a side. There is a time coming on earth when there will be no more sitting on the fence anymore. God is going to electrify the fence is what's going to happen. And everybody is going to have to choose which side to jump off. There's nobody, nobody's left on the fence. Now, that shouldn't be news to us. Uh, this is not unprecedented with God. God has done this many times throughout history. You guys uh, know the story of uh, Moses and uh, the golden calf, right? The children of Israel have just been rescued from Egypt. God has just led them out. They watched God part the sea and defeat Pharaoh and his armies and lead them to Sinai. And Moses has gone up on the mountain to meet with the God they know is there. They've already said, God has spoken directly already to his people and they're like, Moses, tell God to stop talking. We can't handle him talking directly to us. You go up on the mountain and talk to him and then come and tell us what he says. That's the whole, they, they, were, they were so freaked out by actually hearing God. So Moses goes up there and it took him a long time. He was four, up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Mountain rumbling. It's not like the Israelites couldn't look over and see, oh, there they are. Right? There, there's the mountain. We know Moses is up there. But when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, and said to him, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Enough with Yahweh leading us. Let's get some other, I don't know what him and Moses are doing up there, but we got to get going. Let's make some gods for ourselves and we'll follow them from now on. And when Moses returns, he realizes what's happening and knows this, this is just, this is terror. This is big trouble. God's going to judge this action, you guys. People are going to die for this. And Moses immediately divides the people by asking them to make a choice. Exodus 34, 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And some did. And those people that, went to him, escaped a judgment that kills 3,000 men that day. It's a similar story with Joshua at the end of his life. He gathers all the people at Shechem, and they have a covenant renewal ceremony. They're going to repeat the things that happened at Sinai together as they're going in to conquer the promised land. Joshua 24 said this, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. 
and you lived in the wilderness long ago. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. I gave you the land which you had not for which you had not labored and cities you had not built and you dwell in them and you eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if you don't want to do that, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's like, okay, let's everybody get their chips on the table here. We're either going to serve God or we're not. We're either going to go back to the gods of Egypt, we're going to either adopt the gods of our neighbors, or we're going to be faithful to serve the Lord. And Joshua presents the people with the choice. Which side are you going to choose? God has done this several times with his people. And the, in the end, he's going to do it with the whole world. He's going to demand an answer from the whole world to this question in the end. Whose side are you on? Everyone is going to have to pick a side. Everyone is going to have to choose who they trust. Everybody is going to have to choose who they serve. And here's the crux of the issue. This is what it's all about. Everyone is going to have to choose who they worship. Who will you worship is the question. We've been studying the book of Revelation for uh, several months now, and we've reached chapter 9. We're in the middle of, this, of the section known as the seven trumpets. And I've mentioned this before. This is the Exodus story retold here, okay? Just like God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and into their own land in the beginning, God is, in the end, going to deliver his people from slavery to sin and into the eternal kingdom of his Son. And just like God has always done, just like God did so clearly and demonstrably in Egypt, God is going to warn the people. God is going to call people to make a choice. Now, in Revelation here, in the story, we're in the um, timeline of Daniel's 70th week. So God told Daniel way back in Babylon, 500 BC, there's going to come a time at the end of the age where I'm going to wrap this all up. There's going to come a time where there, there's going to be seven years left and then you're going to see me act in ways that you've never dreamed of before. And here in, in Revelation chapter 9, we're, we're in Daniel's 70th week, the period of seven years that begins with a treaty made between the adversary and Israel for their protection. And halfway through, that treaty is violated by the man of lawlessness, the final opposer of God, the final Pharaoh. And here in chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation, the halfway point is long past. That's already happened. We're well into the final 
three and a half years of the story. The treaty has, by this point when the trumpets are happening, the treaty has been broken. The temple sacrifices have been started and stopped already. The temple has been desecrated. The cosmic signs and earthquakes have begun. The two witnesses who we're going to learn about in chapter 11, they've already had their career. They're, they're pr- approaching their own death by this point. And here we are reading about the trumpets. And this is God's warning to his enemies. God's warning to the world. The end is here. I am going to act. I am, let my people go. I'm going to deliver them. The great tribulation has begun. The time of Jacob's trouble is underway and building. And the pressure and the distress on this world are only going to build until they reach their climax in the great day of the Lord, which is almost upon the world. The great day of the Lord, the day, the time that's coming when God will deal with his rebellious creation and crush the evils of this world. That day is coming. Because here's the thing. God's not going to put up with rebellion forever, right? He is restraining judgment for a time. But that time will run out. This has been talked about all through the Bible. God is holding back. God is presently restraining his wrath. But he won't restrain it forever. Psalm 711, David writes, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. He writes later in 85.4, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Jeremiah 10, 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He goes on to say, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. God is angry over sin. God is angry over the defilement of his creation. God is angry about the defilement of his people, of his temple, of his city. God's anger is not like our anger, okay? Just so you know. Um, God's anger is holy and righteous and has to do with justice. Right? God is angry at injustice, and he wants injustice. He's not angry like us, like losing our temper, and, you know, we don't, he doesn't do that. But he does hate sin, and he hates evil, and he is committed to eliminating it. Isaiah 13 says, The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Daniel writes about this. Uh, Daniel writes a lot about this kind of stuff. And one of the things he writes about is, and he, one of the things he pleads, God, God, when is your indignation going to end? When are you going to be satisfied with your people? Is that day ever going to come? Are we ever going to escape this sin, repent, regather, sin, repent, recycle? Or is this just how it's going to be? Is Are we always going to live under your indignation, God? God sends Gabriel to answer Daniel's question in Daniel 8:19. And he says, "Behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end 
of the indignation. It's like, oh, it's going to end? Yeah, yeah, it is. And he says, for it refers to the appointed time. Later in the end of Daniel, Daniel 11:36, and the king, sh- talking about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak ath- astonishing things against the god of gods, and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what his decreed shall be done. And here in Revelation 8 and 9, we are, s- we are seeing the final preparations that God is making on the earth, the final years and months and weeks that will bring the end of God's waiting. His indignation will be complete. And the time where God will no longer put up with this rebellion by his creation is coming. The the time of the end of the indignation is here, and God is going to warn the world like he always has. Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. God is not unfair. God is going to warn the world. You ever heard this? A lot of people, I don't know about God. I mean, if he would just make things clearer, right? Why can't he write something in the sky, maybe? Why why can't he show up and speak to me? Why, Why doesn't he just kind of just tell us what he wants? Well, You've thought that, or you know of anybody who has thought of that, well, they're, okay, you get your wish, but kind of be careful what you ask for. God is going to show up. God is going, God is going to tell us himself what he wants. He's going to tell us, just like he told Pharaoh and everyone else in Egypt, with great signs and wonders. And this is what we're seeing when we get to Revelation chapter 8. These are, the gr- these are the warnings that God is giving to this world that judgment is coming. The end is coming. My, my patience is almost up. It's almost the end of the indignation that I'm willing to put up with before I fix all of this. And the first angel blew his trumpet there in verse 7 of chapter 8. And there were followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Okay, that's, that's not going to be a secret, right? Everybody's going to see this happen. There's not going to be any, oh, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see the whole grass burning up thing. No, it, everybody's going to see all of this stuff, whether it's directly on top of them or not. Just says a third, so there's going to be two-thirds that are watching. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown in the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. What are people going to think is happening here when this is going on? That always makes me wonder. Like, when this happens, what is going to be the reason that it's happening that CBC tells us? I don't, I don't know. Like, whatever news, right? What are they going to say? What, what's going on here? Because then it's even worse. And a third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and of the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So Notice this, four trumpets, four environmental disasters, okay? Grass and trees, fresh water, the sea, 
What was the, oh, in the sky, the lights in the sky. God is going to strike at nature. God is going to strike at our world itself in warning before he unleashes the personal warnings because that's what's coming next. You can see in chapter 8, verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, we spent some time last week going over the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. Um, suffice it to say, um, this, these things are uh, no longer just judgment signs given on the earth. God's going to reach out and touch people now. And he is going to inflict his warning signs right on to the bodies of people. There's no way now we can be, oh, it's, it's just out there. No, no, he's touching people now with his judgment in order to warn them. And uh, we can, I don't want to get into a lot of it, but we can see this, uh, the release of the powers of hell onto his creation. And it is not going to be fun. The first, uh, the first, uh, sorry, the fifth trumpet, the first woe, saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Now, we don't, we went through this last week. I don't know what the locusts are. There's some kind of weird thing going on there, but they're clearly demonic, and they're clearly painful, um, and they clearly are afflicting the people of the earth. Verse 12 says, the first woe is past. Behold, the two woes are still come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Uh, that's pretty severe. No, we're, we're not worried about killing the grass anymore. The people are falling. A third of mankind. Keep in mind, that's just, this is after already a quarter of the earth has been lost in just the first three and a half years as God unleashes his horsemen onto creation. Apparently these are, I don't know, I don't know what's going on here with these horses in different colors and their tails and their, it'll, it'll all come out. Everybody will see. It says this in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. Well, let's leave that for a second. Let's just say this. The warning shots have been fired at this point. God has showed signs and wonders on the earth and signs and wonders on the heavens. He has afflicted mankind. He has shaken the earth and displayed his power. How are the inhabitants of the earth going to respond to these great warnings? Uh, I would think they're probably going to respond pretty much like Pharaoh did. And it's the same story. We see what they respond. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which, which cannot see or hear or see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. I'm just guessing, but it doesn't look like the response that God is looking for here. Remember I said, this is a, this is a question of worship. Right? This is, the whole thing is who will you worship? 
This is exactly what's going on here. Verse 21, nor did they repent. They didn't change their minds. They didn't change their actions. They didn't change how they felt about these things. They didn't change how they felt about murders and sorceries and sexual immorality and thefts. Didn't mean a thing for these people. All that, all that judgment, all that warning, all the messages from God. They just keep right on going with their program. Also, back up a little bit. They would not give up, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood that cannot see, hear, or walk. Now, I could have read probably half the Old Testament to uh, talk to, to give you examples of God's concern for the idols of the neighboring nations that lead his people astray. They wouldn't give up worshiping demons and idols is what John is writing here. This is just a reference to the gods of their neighbors, the gods of the world. Exodus 23 says this, um, as God is speaking to his people, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So uh, my angel is going to guard you and lead you to the promised land. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. This has been the pattern of Israel. They are lured away from the God that saved them and ensnared by the pagan worship around them. They let the things that their neighbors worship capture their own hearts and lead them away from God. And we find out here with John, things are no different today and they're no different with us, right? The whole world is like this. The whole world is like that at the end. Mankind is generally following and serving other gods. They are worshiping his enemies. What about this phrase? They did not repent of the works of their hands. What does that mean? It's actually pretty cool. Um, the other place it mentions this in the New Testament is in Stephen's speech. Stephen, one of the first apostles or the, the first followers of the apostles, lived in Jerusalem. Um, good man of God. When he was stoned to death for his faith. In his uh, condemnation of the leaders of Israel, he says this. He's explaining the story and he talks about that time when they made the golden calf back at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he says, hey, you're, you, guys, you guys are the people that asked Aaron, make, us, make for us gods who will go before us. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. The story's still the same. The people in Revelation are doing the same thing 
the people were doing in their very first betrayal of their covenant with the Lord. They had just made it. They were finishing up. They, the ink wasn't dry yet on the tablets. I guess there's probably not ink on tablets, but you get my point. I like, like this is like right from the beginning. Rejoicing in the works of their hand. This is, this is what's going on here, right? This is just a way to say, we're going to decide what happens from now on. We are going to be the determiners of what gets worshipped. We are going to be the ones to set our own agenda. Moses, you're, it's, he's taken too long. Forget him. Let's just move on without him. That's exactly what they're saying. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who we do, we do not know what has become of him. There, and they said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. It's like, never mind him, we'll just follow this. They're saying, we can take it from here on our own. Right? They, they cast their God aside and assume his role themselves. Now, if that is not a picture of our day and age, I do not know what is. The God of creation gives us life and breath, and he patiently waits, giving us chance after chance, and we just keep on going without him, setting our own course in life and trying to make our own future on our own terms. How's that going to work out? How has it worked out every other time? Not good. This is the deciding question of life. The deciding question of the end of the age is the question we all face every day. Who will you worship? Are you going to put your trust in the things of this world, gold and silver and all the things that we can make out of them? Are you going to put your trust in the gods of this world, the things that the nations choose to worship? Or will we worship ourselves? as God, put ourselves at the center of our own hearts and serve ourselves. God calls us all to make that decision, and in the last days, he will demand everyone declare where they stand on this issue, and everyone will have to declare who it is that they worship, who it is that they live for, who it is that they serve, and a lot of people, it's going to be who it is they're going to die for. Band's going to come up, sing another song. That's what he's doing. He's making people choose. The end is near. Who are you going to put your trust in? Are you going to put your trust in the things that the nations trust? Are you going to put your uh, trust in wealth and power and human ingenuity and intelligence? Are you going to put your trust in yourself? You can do it. You're the determiner of your own fate. You can stand on your own. Well, thankfully, there is another option. Right? And way back in the beginning, the thing that started it all, way back in the garden, is when God gave us the chance. He suspended our sentence. What's a suspended sentence in legal terms? Pretty interesting. A suspended sentence is a sentence on conviction for a criminal offense, the serving of which the court orders to be deferred in order to allow the defendant to perform a period of probation. And if the defendant does not break the law during that period and fulfills the particular conditions of the probation, the judge dismisses the sentence. 
if the defendant commits another offense or breaks the terms of the probation, the court will order the sentence to be served immediately in addition to any sentence needed for additional offenses. So, mankind was given a suspended sentence. We're going to wait and see what happens, God is. And we'll reconvene this, and then we'll evaluate, and we'll see. Will the cases be dismissed, or will the sentences be served? Now, when it comes time to face the judge who will determine that, God, when our probationary period is done, and our lives are... are, are, are Our lives on probation are evaluated by a holy God. Will our sentences be dismissed? Or will there just be more evidence to convict you? We all know the answer to that. There is more than enough evidence to convict me. There's more every day. There's more than enough evidence to convict each and every person that's ever lived multiple times over. How do you respond to God's warning? Does it make your heart softer? Make your heart harder? Because God gives us warnings. God warns us constantly. Does God's warnings make you tender or calloused? Do God's warnings make you repentant or obstinate? Do God's warnings make you more alive or more numb to what's happening in Him? When God punishes you for your sin, when God disciplines us and allows us to face the consequences of our sin in this world, how do we respond? More arrogance and rebellion or more humility and repentance? When the indignation is complete, when the day of reckoning comes, what will be the verdict on your life? When your probation is done, what will the evidence say? Will your sentence be dismissed? Will the evidence say that you are innocent of wrongdoing? That you're innocent of breaking God's law? Of course not. But good news, God has made a way. Your suspended sentence can be dismissed. Our God is a savior. Good news, Jesus has already served the sentence that you deserve. And anyone who chooses to worship him will have their sentence dismissed. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the powers of this world. No one and nothing has the power to deliver you out of God's hand except God himself. He has sent his son to save his people from their sin, and that is exactly what he will do for anyone. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, great, small, alike. The seventh trumpet is coming. The final warnings are going to go out. Want to know the start of the final warning? It's really cool. Revelation 14, 7 says this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every, to every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The final warning is coming and it's all around the question of worship. Everyone has to decide what they really want. 
Everybody has to decide what they're really living for. There's no comparison in my mind. It's got to be, it's Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He's the only one worth living for or dying for. I agree with the courts of heaven as they stand around the throne of God and watch in awe as our king takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and begins to transform this world. And all of heaven breaks forth into a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they'll sh- they shall reign on the earth. How could we worship anyone else or anything else? We worship him alone. 